Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. In this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. I am Paula Hansel, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2022 Writer-in-Residence. Today, I am pleased to speak with three amazing Cincinnati authors, Emma Carlson-Byrne, Marianne Chan, and Michael Griffith, about incorporating research into creative projects. So let me introduce my guests. Emma Carlson-Byrne is the author of over 120 books for children, teen, and young adult writers. She has worked under her own name and is a ghostwriter with American Girl Publishing, Disney Lucasfilm, Simon & Schuster, PJ Library, Lonely Planet Kids, National Geographic Kids, and Scholastic, among others. Her most recent book is Books by Horseback, A Librarian's Brave Journey to Deliver Books to Children, winner of 2021 Northern Lights Book Awards in the historical category. And not only that, she is my predecessor as writer-in-residence here at the library. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Marianne Chan is the author of All Heathens, a double award winner. The book was the winner of the 2021 Great Lakes Colleges Association New Writers Award in Poetry and the 2021 Ohio Anna Book Award in Poetry. All Heathens visits Magellan's voyage around the world and navigates Marianne's Filipino heritage by grappling with notions of diaspora, circumnavigation, and discovery. Her poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, New England Review, Kenyon Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, and more. She is currently pursuing a PhD in English and Creative Writing at the University of Cincinnati. Welcome, Marianne. Thanks, Paletta. I'm happy to be here. Glad you're here. And Michael Griffith. His books of fiction are Spikes, Bibliophilia, some of which takes place in a library, I understand, and Trophy. While working on a novel, Michael found himself researching and writing a book of essays instead. The Speaking Stone, Stories Cemeteries Tell, a literary love letter to the joys of wandering graveyards, specifically our own Spring Grove Cemetery, which I happen to love. Among other honors, Michael is recipient of an Individual Artist Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and is Professor of English at the University of Cincinnati and at the Swanee School of Letters as well. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for having me and uh, great to see you, Marianne and Emma. I'm glad you're all here. And so let's talk about these books and how they came to be. Uh, What we're going to do is to hear from each of the authors, and then we'll dig into some questions. And so we're going to begin with Michael Griffith. Um, Michael, would you read us an excerpt from The Speaking Stone and tell us a bit about the book's development? Sure. Um, Well, as you suggested, the book came about kind of by accident, and then accident became its structural principle and its main theme, too. I, I meant to be writing another book. It was in the process of playing hooky from that book that I started taking daily walks in Spring Grove and writing this book of essays about the stones. But there are a few, um, there are three, I think, brief interludes in the book where I end up having to talk about uh, the making of the book and how the book developed. And I'm going to read a little tiny piece from one of those. A decade or so ago, my friend Brock Clark had great fun ridiculing a certain navel-gazing cult in his novel, The Arsonist's Guide to Writers' Homes in New England. The protagonist, Sam Pulsifer, who has accidentally torched Emily Dickinson's house and two people with it, takes solace wherever he can find it. 
There were people in the world, he reassures himself, quote, even more desperate, more self-absorbed, more boring than I was. Those people, he says, belong to the category of narcissistic untouchables called memoirists. Please, God, let me not be that, I thought. So why was I tramping around a graveyard every day? If asked, I might have opted for the mountaineer's glib, evasive, because it's there, which would at least contain some literal truth. I couldn't get an oil change or go to the grocery store without passing Spring Grove. But to reply like that would be to crawfish away from a darker, more personal why. What else was always there? And as my age advanced and my parents and my in-laws and my friends, ever less ignorably so. Oh yeah, right that. The Las Vegas country music concert that turned shooting gallery then killing field. Joggers and tourists mowed down by a rental truck in Manhattan. The envied athlete from high school who was wasting away with cancer back home. The shaken looking, off, looking officers standing in strobing lights between a mangled sedan and an unhurrying ambulance as my daughter and I inched past in traffic. The 19th century deaths I'd been writing about were of course no less real or permanent or tragic than these, but they were more remote in time, easier to translate into narrative. And I wasn't encountering Spring Grove deaths on the car radio as my daughter and I left the gymnastics center lot, which would yield a pause in her bright stream of anecdote and the question, Papa, are you crying again? Yes, Papa was crying again, taken unawares for the umpteenth time, like a baby slow to pick up on the trick behind peekaboo. So thanks be for cemeteries. What kind of fool is surprised to discover deaths in a place divvied into plots and designed for such contemplation? They'd made death a garden you could visit, a joyful place. Stop there. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, so will you talk a little bit more then about, about the book and where it goes from, from there and how you, uh, how you developed it? Sure. I mean, essentially what happened is I was working on this novel. It was going nowhere. I was spinning my wheels. And uh, I've always loved obituary. I was actually writing about an obituary writer. And so I, I reasoned, maybe if I, maybe if I go into the cemetery, I'll get some osmosis. Um, and one day I was walking past a stone that I'd passed a hundred times. And uh, it's a beautiful art deco stone for a guy named Leon Van Loo, the Belgian born photographer. Um, and I realized I had just gotten my first iPhone and I realized I have a research library in my hip pocket. I pulled it out. I looked up Leon Van Loo and suddenly I was plunged into this bizarre story about the photographic um, process he had invented and his portrait of Ulysses S. Grant immediately after Grant became the lead commander of the Union forces. And then this, when he started the Cincinnati um, Artists League, and they had uh, I, I, the detail that sticks in my mind is that there were there were thirteen of them, but they did not want to start a club that had thirteen people in it, so they enrolled somebody's dog as their fourteenth member. <laughs> so I, I found all that out within you know two minutes of standing at the stone, and I thought I I want to every everywhere I wander in the cemetery, if I see a name that's familiar, or I, I get you know I run into something that interests me, I'm I'm going to look it up, and that became my that became my um, ritual and ultimately it led to the book. But I mean, the wow. principle, as I said, was accident. And so mm -hmm. one of the essays came about when I literally chased a wild turkey one morning mm -hmm. through a hedge and almost tripped over a stone that then became uh, one of the essays. That's so right. that, that's basically the story. 
So almost literally a, a rabbit hole of research. <laughs> I, I, may, I may have tripped over a, a literal rabbit hole or two. Thanks, Michael. And we'll hear, we will be hearing more from Michael about, uh, about his process soon, but let us hear from Emma. And Emma, will you please uh, read us from Books on Horseback? I wish we could see those lovely pictures too, but we'll, we'll make sure to, to link to the cover of the book so we can at least see that. Uh, and tell us too about your process, including your choice to make this particular book one of fiction. Yeah, so Pauletta, um, this is a picture book, a little hard on audio, but um, the book is called Books by Horseback, and it is a fictional story of a real program, um, which was the Pack Horse Library Project, which ran in Eastern Kentucky. It was a WPA project that ran during the 1930s, during the Depression, and um, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but I, you know, I'm interested in this, I was interested in this uh, program for two reasons. One is that my family is from uh, actually the West Virginia sort of um, mountains, but near, near Eastern Kentucky. Um, and so I've always been very attached to the area. And I'm also a horsey person. And um, I was so I was fascinated by this program. And you're right that I set out to write um, a fiction, a nonfiction book, um, a nonfiction biography. Um, of, uh, of these librarians and of the librarian, but because these were regular, ordinary women in the area, it was very hard for me to find a real life protagonist to uh, center the book around. Mm -hmm. And so my editor suggested I take a stab at making it fiction and making um, the main character, Edith, a composite character, um, a fictional one. Um, and, uh, and so it worked out great. And I did it. Um, and we can talk more about that later. But meanwhile, I'll go ahead and read. And I think I can read the whole the whole thing. So we'll see Excellent. if I can do it. The Kentucky dawn is gray and chilly, but Edith is already awake and pasting a torn book. She promised eight-year-old William Caudle that she would bring him an adventure story today. Edith is a pack horse librarian. Every day she travels for miles to deliver books. William lives far back in the mountains. Edith will have to ride hard to reach his family's cabin. Edith laces her boots and slaps on her hat. As she stuffs storybooks, magazines, and her lunch into her book sack, she hears the distant crack of thunder. Looks like a storm is coming, Dan, Edith says. Dan nickers as she hoists his saddle. We better hurry. That's her horse. Mm -hmm. we, Dan, we figured. Right. <laughs> He's the one who wears Dan picks his way down the steep slope to Troublesome Creek. Edith and Dan slip and slide, scrabbling in the slick mud. Water splashes up onto Dan's chest. Edith grips the book stack tight. If her books get wet, they'll be ruined. Past the creek, Piney Knob Ridge thrusts its shoulders into the sky. But Edith is not afraid. She's climbed these slopes since she was a little girl. Dan surges forward straining, climbing toward the top of the ridge high above them. He snorts and blows, his ribs heave. You can do it, Dan, Edith says. But Dan has to stop. Tiny Knob is too steep and Edith is too heavy. Edith lashes the book sack to the saddle. She slides down and hugs Dan's damp neck. Edith leads Dan up the ridge. Thorny branches slap at her face. Rocks slide under her feet, tumbling down towards Troublesome Creek. We're almost there, Dan. At the top, Edith and Dan rest and breathe. The sun peeks out from behind the storm clouds and warms their face. Edith pulls out her lunch, two biscuits and some ham. 
Dan snuffles at the fresh grass. The rumpled mountains spread out below them. Edith can just see the Caudill's cabin, nestled in a holler three miles away. Partway down the other side of Piney Knob, a little spring bubbles. Edith is thirsty. She drinks and splashes the cool limestone water against her hot face. A flash of lightning slashes across the sky. Dan jumps as thunder booms, echoing through the hills. Easy boy, she says. She pats his neck as the rain starts. The wind rises to a scream, bending the treetops. Edith pulls on her coat as rain drips off the brim of her hat and pelts Dan's rump. Come on, Dan, Edith shouts. She slaps his shoulder with the reins. Dan springs into a gallop. Crash, a tree smashes down right in front of them. No time to stop. Edith and Dan clear it in one spectacular leap. The bookwoman's here. The bookwoman's here, William shouts. He and his sister Ruth are waiting on the cabin porch. I knew she wouldn't forget. Edith and Dan trot into the yard, breathing hard. Mr. Caudle hurries to open the barn door for Dan. Did you bring me an adventure story? William asks. Of course I did. Edith hands down the book sack so they can choose. And I have a pawpaw pudding recipe for you, Mrs. Caudle. Outside, the rain beats against the cabin walls, but inside, Edith pulls a chair close to the wood stove. Mrs. Caudle hands her a mug of coffee. She opens the storybook and starts to read. William and Ruth crowd against Edith's knees as she tells the story of a magic sword buried in a stone. Even Mr. Caudle listens. By the time she's finished, the storm has passed. Edith still has more families to visit. The creeks are going to be extra dangerous after the rain. Mounted again, Edith waves goodbye. The children are waiting, Dan, Edith says. Let's go. That's uh, it. Thank you thank for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. And, and I, I will be very interested when we start talking research with you, since I'm familiar with that uh, that part of the world. I could I didn't need the pictures. I could see them through your uh, through your words. So Thanks, thank you. Paula. Thank you for saying that. And so, Mary Ann, let's hear a poem, please. Um, from All Heathens, Marianne Chan's book of poetry, and talk to us about this interplay of imagination and research in your poetry. Absolutely, thank you. Um, I just wanted to give a little bit of an introduction about All Heathens. So um, All Heathens is about uh, my family and our immigration from the Philippines to the US. Um, we also lived in Europe um, for, for a good period of time. Um, but in addition to that, it, um, it is a book about Magellan and the narrative of the first circumnavigation of the world. Um, so for listeners who don't remember, um, Ferdinand Magellan was a Portuguese explorer who during the 1500s was trying to find um, a westward route to the Spice Islands on behalf of Spain. Um, he ended up in the Philippines. He tried to convert some of the native people there and he was eventually killed in the Philippines. Um, but his arrival in the Philippines really marks the beginning of the history of Spain on the island. So Spain colonized the Philippines for 333 years. So in this book, I wanted to explore that, um, that early history of colonization and think about the way that that history continues to impact my family and myself and other Filipinos today. Um, so the poem I'm going to read is called Elegy for Your Master. And this poem is written for Enrique of Malacca, Magellan's slave. 
And Enrique was a really interesting figure in this history because um, first of all, he may have been the first person to circumnavigate the world. Um, he was taken from Malacca, brought to Seville, and then taken on the westward route to the Spice Islands. And if he made it back to Malacca um, after um, he escaped Magellan's crew, he would have been the first person to circumnavigate the world, which I think is just a really interesting mm -hmm. uh, counter narrative. But in addition to that, he served as Magellan's interpreter while Magellan was in the Philippines. So Filipinos really consider him one of their own. So this is Elegy for Your Master for Enrique of Malacca, Magellan's slave. There wasn't enough rain to kill him. The ship stayed afloat, your clothing darkened, practically dry beneath the stormed sun. What master wants, tuyuk, circumnavigation, to travel all the way around until you are back to where you started, until we feast on what is east, until west swallows west. He bought your body with a few coins from his pocket. He will return it when he is dead, when you are 26, your heart a brown spinning globe. He will turn and return you, Tuyuk, back to your body. In, circum in circumnavigation, the past is in front of you, waiting to be refound, rediscovered. But you will arrive, and the people have aged, and now you pray for his soul because he has made you Christian. So to answer your question, Pauletta, about the, the interplay between research and imagination, yeah. um, when, when writing these poems uh, for this collection, I was reading a lot about Magellan's voyage. I was listening to some lectures about it and also reading just about Filipino history in general. Um, but this book is also about you know, my family and our personal history as well. So part of my research involved kind of interviewing my parents about their lives. Um, I did these really long uh, recorded interviews with them asking them questions that I never asked before. And some of their stories ended up being in this book. Um, but of course, there's kind of limits to um, historical and personal narratives. And there are things that are sometimes misremembered or, um, you know, forgotten or left out or erased. And I think that's sort of where imagination comes in. So for example, in this poem about Enrique, Magellan's slave, there really isn't much written about him. Enrique wasn't even his real name. That was the name that was given to him after his baptism, right? So we don't even know his real name. Yeah. Uh, we don't know if he ends up in Malacca where he's from. So I wanted to kind of imagine what it would have been like to be him, to be on this, this treacherous voyage, um, to be enslaved and um, think about what he what he thought about. And, and same goes for like personal narratives as well. Um, I wrote about my own personal experiences and my family's experiences. And I tried to kind of imagine the connections between those experiences and, and this historical narrative. So I think research kind of inspired these moments of imagination. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And let me just say for, for listeners that both uh, for Michael and Marianne's uh, work we will be including in the blog post that accompanies the this uh, podcast will be including links to longer readings uh, and you can also find that at the Cincinnati Library uh, website as well under writer in residence um, and then of course we hope 
you buy everybody's books or or that you check everyone's books out from the library because they are all there, including Emma's. You got to hear Emma's entire books by horseback, but there's a there's a whole other um, library of of Emma's works within within the library for for you to check into as well as for Marianne and, and Michael's books. Uh, so Emma, we're gonna we're gonna circle back to you now, and and looking at your extensive list, as I say, of of books for young and middle school readers, especially um, based on the content. It seems like you must spend most of your time researching. And so, tell us about your work, and especially the research aspect. How do you find uh, what you need to know, and how much of it actually makes it way makes its way into books? Well, um, you're right, Paulette, that I, I do tons of research because I mainly, although Books by Horseback is my own special baby of a project, I often take um, uh, projects from publishers that they ask me to write. And so the subjects are chosen for me. Um, and so I um, have to be a, a total nerd for research, which is great because that is actually the part of writing that I love the most. I mean, I feel like it's just like playing. I get to just uh, read and I often, um, depending on what I'm writing, I so obviously for nonfiction, I do a lot of reading and sort of more typical kind of scholarly research, which is very fun. Um, for fiction, I do um, sometimes more fun research. For instance, I write a lot of sports stories, um, but I'm not a very sporty person. So I'll often watch a lot of YouTube videos of other people playing the sports and I'll, I'll often um, watch videos of amateurs playing the sports because they move slower than professional athletes. Professional athletes playing sports that I'm writing about move too fast, I can't see what they're doing. So I'll watch, uh, I had to write a whole book about basketball which I know practically nothing about. Um, so I would watch videos that kids had made of themselves playing basketball like in their driveways. Uh, and uh, then I would write down any uh, moves I didn't know what they were doing and then I would look those up and. Um, and then also, obviously, I ask people who know. So I wrote a whole book about hockey. I wanted to include a lot of slang because hockey is a sport, lots of slang. Um, so I called up my friend who is hockey coach and I, I had read him excerpts and I had him flag any areas that sounded weird because it had to sound good. If, uh, you know, kids are going to read this who know about hockey. Uh, so that's like sort of the more, the more fun aspects. Um, and Books by Horseback took, took a whole lot of research mm -hmm. um, and it, I was, because it started out as nonfiction, um, I was just, I mean, I did probably almost a year's worth of research before as I was sort of writing many drafts. Uh, it, was, it was kind of ongoing and I'd be happy to talk about that now or we can talk yeah, about go, it no, go, go ahead if you want to talk a bit about it, that'd be great. Well, it's um, because the Pack Horse Library project um, was a WPA project, it was really well documented. Mm -hmm. um, and Eleanor Roosevelt actually came and visited some of the, um, some of the uh, sort of outposts that they would use. And so there's lots of pictures of her and they would send out WPA photographers to photograph these women um, on their trip. So I would look at a lot of arch archival pictures. Um, also, um, the uh, one place that a lot of the librarians came from was from settlements, boarding settlement schools, which were in, in the mountains. And these were places that, um, you know, uh, teenagers and children could go and, and stay and, and have their education there. And, um, one of these schools in particular, the Pine Mountain Settlement School, maintains a huge, wonderful archive uh, by an archivist named Helen Weichel. Um, and there's tons and tons of photographs and interviews because uh, in there because a lot of these, um, some of the teenagers would go out and, and deliver the books. And that was a sort of work study that they would do. Um, 
So I got to just sort of like sort through the archive. Now, one thing I did not get to do was talk to a real pack horse librarian. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these are ordinary women. They're just regular. A lot of them just sort of faded away. In addition to that, most of them are dead. Yeah. Um, there was one woman who was uh, who was alive, and I tried to talk to her, but she went to a nursing home right about the Aww. same time, so I didn't get to talk to her. Yeah. So that was that was sad. That was a big hole. Yeah. Um, but I tried to fill it as best I could. And did you uh, did you actually visit Troublesome Creek? Did you did you get a feel of the place by being in the place? So um, I was not able to visit the actual Troublesome Creek, which is a real place. Um, but I hope I captured the feel of the place because I spent a lot of my childhood in these, in nice. this uh, area that the pack yeah. of a book is written about. Uh, we would often go, my uh, great grandmother lived in Huntington, West Virginia. And so we would go pretty frequently to see her and drive through and spend time back there in the mountains. And so I definitely drew heavily on my own memories. Yeah. Um, what was interesting was working with the illustrator. She was, a, uh, she's Italian and she is from Tuscany. And so she drew a lot of the initial mountains as Tuscan mountains. Mm -hmm. um, so we went back and forth a lot with, with photographs of the really unique nature of the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. They're yeah. really not like any other mountains I've ever seen. Um, they're definitely not like mountains in Tuscany. So that was sort of a fun exchange. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so let us then move on to Mary Ann a little bit, who uh, I would also imagine that your your work is an interplay between between memory and and uh, and new research, um, and it seems to me as a poet uh, that you probably face some particular challenges in terms of research that, you know, that hours of research may end up as a single poem or even a single line in a poem or even the inspiration for a poem and it never really got into the mm -hmm. into the poem at all. And so my question for you actually is, is, is one of very personal interest to me and that is how do you how do you keep focused as you go down that rabbit hole of information? How do you how do you balance this um, this question of, of of research and writing? I actually would really love to hear your answer to this question, <laughs> but um, I'll give mine first, I guess. So um, I I think I don't keep focused. I think that what happens at the beginning stages is. I just try to write a lot and just write poems that um, that I feel or write from research that inspires me. And so mm -hmm. I was reading a lot about Filipino history, trying to learn more about it because I, you know, I didn't have um, that much of an education in, in Filipino history growing up in the U.S. And so um, I was I would write some poems that um, that were about Filipino history that just really didn't end up in this book. And I think that what I ended up doing was I had these like two categories of poems that ended up in All Heathens. There were poems that were about my family and then poems that were more focused on Magellan. Um, but I didn't kind of realize that until I started putting the manuscript together. So I think what I what I usually do is I write a lot and then I just prune you know, I take out whatever seems superfluous or not connected to the themes of, of what the manuscript is becoming. Mm -hmm. um, so at the very beginning stages, when I'm just doing my research, I don't try to limit myself. I don't try to censor myself. I just write. And then as I'm putting it together, I kind of think about what is, what, what's working together, what connections are, are being yeah. made. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and a follow-up question, which, which, um, which Emma may also want to respond to at some point as well as Michael. Uh, it's as 
as you all are talking, I'm thinking about my my brief stint as a paralegal and working with a with a wonderful lawyer who told me that um, at Legal Aid, which is where I worked, who told me that she had to have bathtub brain. So she would fill it up with all of the information that she needed mm. for the particular case that she was working on. And then when that case was over, the plug would be filled. And so, you know, in thinking about Emma, she might not know about hockey, <laughs> you know, a year later, all of her hockey, hockey information may be gone. And, and I just wonder, Marianne, uh, for you, is that true for you? Do you have bathtub brain or is all of this information that you gathered continuing to work in you as you develop poems and in, in a perhaps in a new vein? So bathtub brain means that you kind of forget everything after you. Yeah, done. sort of. I mean, I guess if, if we want to stay with the metaphor, you probably have the residual, you know, from so scum, yeah. <laughs> but you don't you don't actually have the have the water. Yeah, I have a terrible memory, which is partly why I like writing poems about my family and about Filipino history, because these are things that I want to remember. And so um, writing about them has helped me remember and also giving readings and and kind of um, promoting the book has helped me kind of like reading, reading my poems repeatedly has like allowed me to remember the information, but there are a lot of things that are definitely lost. Yeah. 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 Which it, it sounds like may be a good thing for you because then you can continue to work in a new vein. Is that mm -hmm. true? Or, or, or do you feel it the opposite? I think it's kind of sad that I don't remember <laughs> a lot of what I researched, honestly. Yeah. 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 Well, you did wonderful things with what you what you remembered at the time. So, Michael, um, that rabbit hole of research took you from the novel you were planning into a whole new genre. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a number of things, but one of them is is knowing that fiction is something that you continue to uh, to do. What new skills and practices did you develop along the way uh, in terms of the research? If any, you know, have these informed your fiction writing or were you always a researcher for your for your work? Well, I mean, for me, and this goes to, to much of what Marianne was saying and, and the metaphor of circumnavigation to, you know, I'm, I'm primarily a teacher. And one of the things that, one of the things that I try very hard to teach, especially undergraduates, is that people tend to think of research as instrumental. You research in order to get something mm -hmm. in, and in order to get to a particular destination. I'm much more interested in the kind of research that you and Emma and Marianne are talking about that's about, um, following your curiosity where it leads and trusting that you're going to find connections between disparate things. Like mm -hmm. that's, for me, that's the great interest of fiction. It's the great interest of nonfiction. And as I said, in my, in uh, there's, I think there's a tendency for beginning writers to think that writing a novel in particular is about finding the proper path through the material to the foreordained conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a terribly, I, it's utterly wrong and it makes the process seem impossible. I mean, the, it's about finding a path through the thicket. It's about, yeah. uh, and the fact is if you did it a hundred times, you'd find a hundred different paths through the thicket. Yeah. And so what I, I had been teaching a class at UC about um, the connections between walking and narrative. And I, I mean, an example of what I'm talking about is the, just the idea of digression. Mm -hmm. People think of digression as a bad thing because what that implies is that there is a proper grass. There's a path 
through that you're supposed to take. And anytime you wander away from it, you're, you're um, wandering away from the purpose of your novel, but that's not how novels work. And yeah. so this book essentially just became a way for me to practice what I preach in that the whole principle of the book was I, I didn't search out particular stones. Um, I knew some of the famous people who were in, in the cemetery and I encountered some of those graves, but I just wanted to wander where, where I was taken. And obviously there are all kinds of weird, um, weird contingencies in a cemetery. What's the weather like? What's the footing like? What can you see? Um, um, do you chase an animal through a hedge and so on? So I really wanted to be alive to what's the connection between this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And this. So the idea of, of, for me was I wanted to research just, I was going to follow my curiosity. I was going to look up what I saw. And then I had this faith that the outlines of the book that I wanted to write, which I wasn't sure what it was. I mean, I knew that all this hung together in some way. I knew that I was working towards something. I wasn't sure what that was. Mm -hmm. That was the great adventure of the book. And so yeah. the research was a way of, of getting there just by following what you're interested in and, and writing about other people and then discovering how those other people and their concerns illuminate your own. Yeah, that, yeah, that does. And, and Emma, if you wouldn't mind uh, popping in here, I'm just curious because you've, you've let us know that you know many of your your subjects are chosen for you by by people by you know by by publishers who are contracting with you. Do you have this? Uh, do you find this sort of freedom for yourself in 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 terms of of following your interests and and you know do you end up using things for that you researched for one book and another book? So it was very interesting hearing Michael talk, um, and of course I was thinking about how that compares to my own experience. So I'm a working writer. This is my, my day job, my, my only full-time job that I've been doing for oh, 15 years now. Um, and so I have, um, I've developed a, a sense that um, the, well, I write on deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, it's similar to maybe how a journalist might work, except my deadlines are much longer because I'm writing books and not articles. But if the assignment is to write a beachy novel for, you know, aimed at girls 13 to 17 that needs to take place in Napa Valley and be 50,000 words and include, you know, uh, these six characters that have been already written about in previous novels, because I often write as part of a series. Well, then I see it as a challenge. Um, I often, I also ghostwrite. Um, and I write, most of my books are part of a series. Oh, not all of them, but a lot of them. So I have also, um, I try to be good at writing in different voices, in different styles, um, uh, writing fast and clean, uh, not going over my word count and writing to, I often write to house um, guidelines and specifications that are specific to the publishing house, uh, especially when I write as part of a series. And so that's sort of what I see. I mean, I, I, I love this work and that's sort of what I see as, as a challenge. Um, I mean, I think it helps to be a total nerd for, books and reading and words and research. And so I just sort of, it feels like play. And I, I mean, that's not true. Sometimes it feels like boring, long work that I have to do all day long because it's due. Um, but a lot of times it feels like play. Like for instance, right now I'm researching a book about Star Spangled Banner um, and the Smithsonian um, Museum of American History is, has commissioned it. Um, and I'm working with a publisher as the, as the partner and I was hired on to write it. And it's fascinating research. It's so interesting reading 
about the history of the song itself and then about how people have taken the song and manipulated it, used it and had thoughts about it. And um, I get to be the one to, who gets to read all those articles. Uh, and then, then my challenge is to make this interesting for a reader who is, this book is for, gonna be for people who are nine to 12. Mm -hmm. And I want them to read the entire book. There's gonna be something very interesting in there. And so I have to make sure they keep turning the pages. It's also a graphic novel. So that's my other, my other challenge. So it sort of seems like there's a whole lot of very interesting challenges that I have, um, you know, when I do research and when, when subjects are presented to me. Now I know my own limits. I don't mm -hmm. write about hard science um, because I'm uh, terrible at it. I can't really understand it. Um, I try not to write in rhyme because I'm not very good at it. Although sometimes I'm asked to write for very small children in rhyme. Um, and so I try to, I, I like to take topics that I'm interested in. Um, on the other hand, I don't always have that luxury since this is my job. And, um, you know, I have recently had to write a book about curling. Um, and I couldn't believe I was going to have to write about curling of all sports. But surprisingly, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about curling you may not know. I could tell you all about it. <laughs> Perhaps another time, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> we'll, do a the, we'll, we'll do a curling podcast. That'll be the next one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Excellent. So, Marianne, what's, what's up for you next? Are you continuing down this, uh, this road of research with your next uh, poetry project? Um, sort of. I've, I'm entering my dissertation year. I'm currently working on a manuscript called um, Leaving Biddle City, which is about, uh, you know, a fictionalized, misremembered version of my hometown, which is Lansing, Michigan. Um, and uh, in the book, I wanted to kind of explore um, an experience that I had there. We, my family moved there from Stuttgart, Germany. We were um, on a military base in Stuttgart, Germany, very diverse. And then we moved to this small, uh, mostly white town in Michigan. And I wanted to kind of explore uh, my early experiences of kind of racial alienation. Um, but I also wanted to just write about Michigan. And um, I, I always think about, whenever I think about my hometown, I think about it as being very flat. And so these are all prose poems and some of them are formal poems like the Pantoum or the um, ballad that have been kind of flattened into prose. And so it's been really fun to write so far. Yeah. That yeah. sounds great. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks. And and Michael, how about you? Are you getting back to that novel or to any any fiction at this point? What's what's up next for you? I am. I, I'm actually uh, back to back to a version of that novel. My last, in a way, this book is a is a companion to my last novel, mm -hmm. uh, which took place in one second. And so it's the two novels about. Um, wandering and about, um, you know, about kind of, you know, amb ambling about. Um, and so I decided, I've, I've actually decided that I'm going to try this novel as something utterly different. That is a very heavily plotted novel, um, which I've never really done before. Um, but it's, a, it's actually a, a, a disappearance mystery about a, um, it's about an obituary writer and a crossword puzzle divisor, which is another <laughs> thing that I do on the side. Um, that Emma reminded me of this, like, and I don't, uh, I, sometimes I work in really strict poetic forms or puzzle forms, um, which I find liberating in exactly the way Emma described. So it's really nice to just, it's like having a, a math problem to solve. All right. Yeah. What is the, you know, it's, it's nice to restrict yourself in, in certain ways, the old, you know, yeah. tennis net theory. Right. Yeah, um, Michael. 
I, I feel like it's it's like um, within those strict boundaries, you have ultimate freedom, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which I find comforting. It's like having a yeah. security blanket. Yeah, that's just yeah. nice having something to do. You know, like if you're writing, if you're writing things that are that are really truly free form, mm -hmm. you know, and this has been the case for these last two projects. The the projects were about finding some kind of narrative form that would be coherent. Right. I, I thought found that liberating and really fun, but it's kind of nice to have a ready-made vessel to pour yeah. the thing into and to um, to spend your your play doing other kinds of things. So that's what I'm I'm hoping to do. In, in yeah, this. that sounds really really interesting. I think to 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 me too as a poet, because of course I work within uh, poetic forms every now and then for a lot of the same reasons that Emma and and, and Michael are talking about to find that freedom within form. But I had not thought about it within fiction. And the other sort of resonant thing here from our uh, from the last podcast, which was about uh, poets um, and their books, I'm hearing a lot here about people following their obsessions. You know, Michael's obsession with uh, with obituary writers that kind of and obituaries that kind of continue throughout various projects. So it's just interesting for me as a as a as a reader to hear how um, how some of these themes continue over genres. And Emma, you, I think, have told us one of the things that is up next for you. But if there's anything else you would like to say about what's up next, and then I'm going to ask you to start us off on also on the question that I ask, ask all my guests, which is, what are you reading? So you have you have a two parter here, Emma, to, <laughs> to end your part with. Yeah, so um... I actually have a new book out. It's different than Books by Horseback, but from the same publisher. It's called Shabbat Sabotage, and it is a mystery set at Jewish sleepaway camp, um, another place I've never been, but my sons have been, and so I did a lot of interviews with them. They were great to research the subjects, um, and uh, that just came out in April. Uh, it's for middle grade readers, and um, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's sort of a fun romp, but I like to think it also has some, some there are serious elements about what it means to be away and what it means to be at camp in this kind of crucible of children where children are in charge and really make rules. I mean, the adults are totally peripheral. I mean, they're, they're fine and they're there, but really the story is about what happens when um, everybody gets together. I find in my own experience that emotions run very high at summer camp and that can make for great, interesting reading. Yeah, yeah, um, that's cool. So that's what I am. I'm done writing it, thank goodness. Um, and uh, now I'm just enjoying, you know, taking it around and showing it to people and signing it. Um, and then on my bedside table right now is actually Iger Dreams. I hope I'm pronouncing that right by John Krakauer. He is one of my very favorite writers of all time. And I feel like I always say about him that he's like the ultimate great writer because I'll read anything he writes about any subject, even if I'm not interested in it personally, because he is such a compelling writer. Um, and this is a collection of his mountaineering essays um, that he wrote like a long time ago, and they've just recently reissued it. And since I have to read everything he wrote, this is the only thing of his I had not yet read. Um, and so I'm most of the way through that, um, and I'm loving it. That's great. Thank you, Emma. And and Michael, how about you? What are you reading this summer? Uh, I, you know, I'm always reading three or four books at a time. <laughs> so they're all they're all over the house, and I. I wander around picking up whichever whichever one I'm reading on a given day. So right now I'm just finishing up Sigrid Nunez's The Friend, which is fantastic. Um, I'm in the middle of my year of rest and relaxation by Otessa Mosveg, and 
I've just begun Rachel Kushner's The Mars Room, which I really love so far. Yeah. Right. Those sound wonderful. And we'll make sure to get uh, get information about all of these books to our listeners on our our uh, library blog post. And so, Marianne, what are you reading now? Yeah, I'm reading a few books, too. I um, I just finished Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho, which was really fantastic. Um, and I'm also reading an autoethnography right now by one of my professors, Dr. Sherelle Luckett. It's called Young, Gifted, and Fat, an autoethnography of size, sexuality, and privilege, which has been really interesting. I'd never read a, an autoethnography before, and it's mm. it's been fascinating to, to learn a little bit more about my professor through it. Yeah. Um, and I'm reading Essential Labor, uh, listening to the audiobook Essential Labor by um, Angela Garbus, um, which is fantastic. And I wanted to recommend another poetry collection that incorporated research, uh, Yellow Rain by Miter Vang is uh, incredible. Yeah. Okay. Oh, those are great recommendations. So Emma Carlson Byrne, Marianne Chan, Michael Griffith, thank you so much for being part of this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. And that's it for us. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Thanks for listening. Bye.